Creative Zombie Studios presents the Subjective Comedy Podcast with Brad Scott. Brad Scott is a mediocre comedian from Indianapolis. This is his show. If you don't think it's funny, remember, comedy is subjective. The phrase best of all time is soaked in hyperbole, especially in a subjective art form like stand-up, but I can make a strong case for my guest today, Daniel Sloss. At 17, he was one of the youngest finalists on the show, so you think you're funny. At 19, he started a 10-year run of sold-out shows at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. He's appeared on Conan a record 10 times. His episode of Comedy Central's Roast Battle was the highest rated in the entire series. He released two critically acclaimed Netflix specials on the same day, and 14 months later released an HBO special, joining a list that includes Bill Burr, Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, Ricky Gervais, and Dave Chappelle as having specials on both platforms. Oh, yeah, and this year he turns 30. He's written a book, Everyone You Hate Is Going to Die, and other comforting thoughts on family, friends, sex, love, and more things that ruin your life. It comes out November 3rd and is available for pre-order now. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Why did you decide to write a book, and what was the inspiration for the subject matter? Uh, Oh, man, I didn't. They phoned me. (laughs) My... Editor and publisher, a lovely man called uh, Peter Gethers, um, just phoned me about a year, um, maybe even longer, maybe a year and a half ago, and just said, do you want to write a book? And I was like, about what? Like, a, a, <laughs> um, well, that's kind of a weird, like, I, that's, just, that's just a strange question to kind of get out of the blue, you know? You want to write a book? And yeah, but I'd never thought about it before. Like, my mom's, you know, she's a published author, and... Uh, I've got friends who've written books, but like, um, I don't know, because he was, not only was he like, do you want to write a book? Like, they're, he's from Knopf, so it's like the biggest publishing company in the world. And they were like, you know, we'd like you to write something. And he had a, I, I was skeptical about it because I'm a, I'm not a, I'm not a writer, I'm a stand-up. And I know that involves writing, blah, blah, blah. But to me, it's, you know, I can't write, I'm not good at writing sitcoms, I'm not good at writing screenplays or any other things i'm good at writing stand-up that that just because i'm good at writing stand-up does not mean i'll be good at writing a book uh, they're two entirely different skill sets um but he had a lot of faith you know his thing was he'd seen my specials on netflix and was like well you just seem to have a fucking opinion on everything and i was like well i do i definitely I mean i definitely do um and i think he wanted to you know my take on relationships he thought was quite unique so he wanted to write a book, he want me to write a book about different types of um, relationships and the impacts they have on us, both positive and negatively, uh, through life. Um, but the good thing is, it's obviously not a, f- it's not a, it's n- it's not a non-fiction, but it's also not a f- fiction. Just because it's it not necessarily truthful, it's my opinion, so it technically can't be, can't, well, it definitely can be wrong. Opinions can be wrong, but. Um, it gives me a lot of creative freedom to just say whatever the fuck I want to say. I mean, there's definitely some lines in there that I've just written to piss people off. And what are some uh, of those? Oh no! Like he phones it. Like there's one where just the footnote of it is just me laughing at the horrible thing I said. Uh, <laughs> like there's some uh, getting getting editors' notes back from a book because uh, like. What he said, he was like, "Don't edit anything. Just write. Just type. Just type. I'll give you the, you know, there's, there's different chapters on different types of relationships: siblings' relationships, relationships with your parents, relationships with your country, with your best friends, all these sort of things. 
So, man, I'd, you know, I'd write for a bit and then I'd be on a plane and I'd get drunk and I'd write a bit more there. And, <laughs> and I just, I was making sure that I wasn't fucking editing. And then the amount of things, they just come back. I think at one point he was like, you are aware that you threatened to fight seven people in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea that, uh, like, you're, you're, you're part of your, the first part of the, your writing is just this really well-articulated uh, thought on relationships, but then it just turns into you just letting out your thoughts on the guy that's next to you in the plane. <laughs> it's border. It, it gets close to that. There are some things that I clearly, when I went back and reread it for like one of the many, many edits that it's gone through, I could see the bits that I'd clearly written while on whiskey. Because I just get... <laughs> It's not 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 uh, uh, it's not violent because I'm not particularly a violent person, but it's very antagonistic and fucking nothing. You know, every single word I'm typing out, I believe concrete one hundred percent. And then I come back to the next day, and I'm like, oh boy, that was just saying horrible <laughs> things for the fucking sake of it. I'm looking forward to the chapter where you were smoking weed, and it just turns into a grocery list. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean. It's I I didn't I did go through it once afterwards while on wait because I do I, I made sure that I did it once sober and then I did a reread while drunk and then a reread while stoned and then just go throughing it to see because you know it, it changes the way your mind looks at things and how you process information and uh I but maybe it now it just seems like it's been written by three people one who's nice <laughs> and hungry one who's a cunt and one who's very fighty. <laughs> What was the what was what which relationship did you find was the most difficult to write about? Um, good question. It was it's kind of difficult to write about my uh, my brothers a little bit, um, just because we've had because uh, my my view of my relationship with my brothers is very different to their view of their relationship with me because I've been because they're they. I'm I'm 10 years older than Matthew and I'm 12 years older than Jack. So when I was 13 years old, Matthew was three and Jack was one. Now, I obviously have lots of memories from those years, way more than both of those do combined. They don't have that many memories of those years. So for years and years and years, I thought I was a, well, I mean, I was a horrible big brother. I used to beat the living shit out of them, like throw them around. Uh, Not, not, not punching in face, but, you know, pushing them down, being a, horrible cunty big brother but that's kind of the stereotype i mean that's kind of the accepted cliche of the big brother is you're supposed to make them tough and yeah but was even to me no but i wasn't trying to make them tough they were pissing me off and i wanted to go away <laughs> like it was nothing i wasn't i wasn't doing anything at the goodness of my own heart so for years that really compounded in my own head of like what an awful big brother i'd been to the like all they wanted was for me to to love them the amount that they fucking loved me and uh, they don't see it that way at all. They think I was an excellent brother the entire time. They just, so it's so it's like me bearing my soul, just being like I was an awful big brother and then having them just be like, no, and if you are, you hit us so hard that we don't remember. So that's a bonus. Um, I find, I mean, I mean, you know me, I find it very easy to talk about my emotions. Um, and uh, so the, the, for me, it was a fun it was a fun thing to write. Um, I got to talk about my relationship with Jean. I got to talk about my relationship with my sister. I got to talk about uh, my relationship with, you know, with my guy friends and stuff like that. I don't know. I, I really enjoyed uh, the process um, of it. It, it made old? me. No, go ahead. Go ahead. It, it just made me realize that I had uh, a lot more opinions than I thought I had. 
How how long was the process? How long did it take you to write? Oh, not long. Like um, it's been about the process of writing. It takes ages because you know there's an editor, and I'm not good at grammar and shit. And um, but the actual writing, man, if you know. If I don't have an opinion on something, you can sit me in front of a laptop and for a week, for a week, and I'll write nothing. Or you cannot. If I don't want to do something, God nor the Queen nor anyone can make <laughs> me do it. Um, but the, because these were things I was passionate about, it was people I loved or it was people I hated. I find I find I, I did find it very very easy uh, to to write because it was just sort of flowed. Actually, so I think the first draft of the book accumulatively probably only took, you know, uh, a week or two. But it was finding the moments to write because I was on the tour. So it was like I had to set a time, specific times in the week to sit down and, and write. Uh, and then sometimes you'd be like, OK, next Wednesday at two, I'm going to write for an hour in the afternoon. And then I guess the next Wednesday at two and you're like, I can't be arsed. I'm not in a, you know, I'm not in a creative mood today. So I'd say the whole process took eight months. But I feel like. But I don't want people to think like eight months of like, oh, here we go. Eight months of waiting till I was in the right fucking headspace and, and turning out. Because it's not one of these impressive, you know, it's not one of the great novels of all time. You know, it's not, there's no, it's not a storyline. It's not an epic fucking adventure. It's a semi-drunk Scotsman yelling his opinions <laughs> in caps lock. Uh, that's the first lie that you've told on this podcast because I've known you for seven years. You have never been semi-drunk. You are fucking drunk. Yeah, no. I t no, there's the period before I get drunk when I'm arguably semi-drunk. Did you find it to be therapeutic at, uh, once you got in, into it? Yeah, 100%. Like, there was, you know... St yeah, 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 definitely. Like, I got, to write a, I got to write a chapter about my sister. Like, I haven't really, you know, written out... You know, Dark was one thing talking about her her death, but the book was really more talking about um, the impact of it. And yeah, it was, it was cathartic to, you know, write out and just go, this is how, and the feelings I felt at the time were weird and unusual and they're different to how I feel now, but to acknowledge them was, um, was, was great. And then also there's a chapter where I talk about, you know, my guy friends and obviously one of my, Guy friends from years and years ago is the guy that I talk about in X, uh, the guy that sexually assaulted my other friend. So that was a different type of you know catharsis and writing about that. Um, yeah, I mean it's you know it's, it's, I, yeah I did find the process uh, interesting. Reading it back a lot of the time, I was like, oh fuck, okay, you know, I didn't realize, I didn't realize, I didn't realize I thought that. You brought up X, uh, and I don't know if you've talked about this at nausea, I'm sure you have, but I saw X for the first time in Detroit when I brought uh, my son Charlie, uh, which actually was when you became his godfather, his and godfather, I awkwardly yeah. stumbled through asking you because it was the most awkward thing I've ever done. My uh, His original godfather had passed away six months before that. Thanks for bringing him up. And uh, you were the perfect replace, uh, replacement for him, but X I think is it's and this is gonna it's gonna sound weird, but this is what I think it's a very important special because the message behind it it should be shown in every middle school, every high school. It was I think the best special of 2019. What was the reaction you got once it hit HBO? Um, it was good, man. It was like a, it was a lot. It was similar to the the feedback we'd been getting from going on the. 
the road, which is like when you talk about sexual assault and rape, uh, you know, to, to a large portion of your audience, you're bringing up one of the worst moments of their lives. You know, people have experiences. It's a real thing. But just because something is, is real and dark doesn't mean it shouldn't be talked or necessarily joked about. Um, for me, one of the big struggles was making sure that X was, if it was offending people, it wasn't offending survivors. It wasn't offending people that had gone through it. It was, you know, you never want, I did, personally, I didn't want to make them the butts of the jokes at any point. Uh, and it took a while to get it to that level. But when we did, the feedback was always great. It was, you know, it was uh, women and male survivors coming up saying, you know, thanks for giving a voice. And they were also, a lot of the time, they did have um, recommendations and advice, which I took on board. Because they were like, hey, you say this, and it sounds like you mean this. And you said this, and some people might interpret. Because the language in it was very, you know, important. So a lot of the feedback was just, it was a lot of thank yous. It was a lot of, which I always found weird. Um, and I wasn't good at uh, t taking those. Like, I... I um, <laughs> I had to for a while. I had to. I had to stop. I mean, it was one. It was one of the reasons I stopped reading my um, DMs because, like, I was on tour and I was living. I was reliving, you know, that that scenario every single night. And then, you know, all the messages on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram—they're all nice, but you know, some of them are just really, really in depth, beautifully written out messages from people who've gone through it. And it man, it's you know it's emotionally fucking taxing. Sometimes it was good, like reading those messages is what gave me the drive to go back on stage the next night. So, you know, when I was exhausted, when I didn't want to perform anymore, when I didn't want to do the show again, when I didn't want to say the same words over and over again, reading these messages from people who were empowered by it definitely, you know, fed my giant fucking ego enough uh, fuel to. It reminded me of why I did it. Um, uh, so and and I, man, and I really was I was dead convinced that I was going to get negative feedback from men from the show. I thought there would be men out there who would listen to it and be like, "Oh, look at this preachy fucking shit." Not a single one. Eighteen month tour, three hundred dates, um, and it, I, I'm really happy with that because it proved to me what I also meant to do with the show, which is, you know. I, I do not think men are inherently evil. I, I, ju I just, I don't buy into that. I do think most men are good. I just think men are ignorant, right? And people mistake ignorance for apathy and cruelty. Um, like, I, my friend went through this sexual assault. Uh, my other friend fucking did it. And we were ignorant to it. That's why we didn't see it. We were just, it wasn't spiteful. We didn't let him do it. We didn't encourage it. None of that. We just, we didn't know what was going on because we were fucking ignorant. And when it happened, it gave us all that kick up the ass. And I was just like, man, if men just feel that, if you don't blame them for shit, if you don't yell at them going, this is your fault, if, you, if they can arrive at the same conclusion I did and the, and the conclusion me and all my friends arrived at, which is, fuck, this is real. And, and now I'm more aware of it. And now, like, I didn't realise how bad it was. And that was me being ignorant. I'm going to try my best to, you know, not be ignorant again. You turned up the water slowly, and you talked about the reaction after the show. I, one of the coolest parts of our friendship over the past seven years, and 
if you've been a fan of the Brad Scott Podomatic Cinematic Universe over the years through the different podcasts I've done, they're they're very familiar with you because we met about seven years ago. And if you've seen uh, Daniel's special Dark, you know the weekend we met was his infamous weekend in Indianapolis. Um, you just talked about it on the podcast, A Good One, which came out today. I'm looking forward to listening to that, but I'm not going to go through the joke. People know the story, but after the shows, I remember the first night I saw you on stage, I was just like, holy fuck, this guy is brilliant. And people, it was still Indianapolis, still Indiana, and you were, especially in the States, very you know unknown. It was your second week ever in America, I believe, right? Yeah. And it was it wasn't second week ever performing in America. America, yeah, yeah. And it was a normal comedy club reaction that a crowd gives a headliner who just you know is brilliant. They were coming up, you know, it was hey, that was an amazing show. That was great. You're great. Seeing the reaction last summer all across the country, it, it people coming up in tears. You know, people coming up just toward. And I think it's because. That that message really hit home, and you did. You you found a way to tell that story for them, and and do it that way. And I think another thing that really helped that was the format that you and Kai came up with, with the intermission and Kai giving them a heads up, uh, was brilliant. And Kai was the perfect person to do that because he he put them at ease. Yeah, it was. We we wanted to find a way to do um because for ages I didn't want to put a trigger warning on the show for several reasons. One, and first and foremost, I think putting a trigger warning on a show would deter uh, deter the type of person who should who should see the show from seeing the show. I thought you just get a bunch of guys being like, "Oh, fucking trigger warning! Here comes a fucking bullshit! Look at this, you know, libtard, snowflake, all those other fucking catchphrase <laughs> shit." Um, and the other one was, uh, from a more artistic point of view, I think putting a trigger warning on would would ruin the the twist in the show, get rid of the gravitas. Uh, people wouldn't listen. You need that impactful moment, that awkwardness to make fucking people listen. So, and there were many survivors who, I think, before we were in San Francisco, I had about six separate occasions, or maybe it was five. Doesn't matter. Five or six separate occasions where I was spoke to a survivor who was just like, hey, that caught me off guard. A trigger warning would have been nice. Like, I, I, was, I was sat beside my mom. I was sat beside my dad. I was sat beside someone who didn't know what I went through and you made me relive it. Beside them, it would have been nice to prepare for that. And I always had this big discussions with them where I would be like, I totally hear you. I'm really sorry that you went through that. But, like, the reason I don't think I should put a trigger warning on the show because of these reasons. And I do make sure that in all my interviews, I make sure that I do always mention that the show is, does contain themes of, you know, about sexual assault. Um, but then in San Francisco was the day where it was our first time in America, uh, oh, sorry, in the second leg of the American tour. Three separate women uh, got up and left, not angrily, but because it, you know, they'd been affected by it and it caught them off guard. So yeah, once once that happened, I was like, well, now my argument about trigger warnings is dead in the fucking water. There's far too much. It's it's now it's worse than it is good. Now my argument's over. I've lost. I have to put a trigger warning on the show. Um, and and Kai was the best way to do it. Uh, it was a much better way. The way it was more natural. It didn't stand out. It gave them the 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 break to sort of prepare. And it, it I don't know made it sort of a less dramatic thing i think 
And I got to meet Kai. I'd heard about Kai over the years, and you guys have a podcast that's available on all podcast platforms, Sloss and Humphreys on the Road. And Kai instantly became one of my favorite people to be around. He just has such an infectious personality. He is one of the just most naturally funny human beings. He's, you know, oh, he's somebody that can just always create comedy in any scenario you're in when you're hanging out. He, how did you guys meet and where did that friendship start? Oh, we met. So I did a, I was doing the fringe when I was about 17 years old. I got to the final of a competition called So You Think You're Funny. Uh, and then I met my agent uh, afterwards, or I'd met her before then or whatever, but I was in the competition, signed with her. Then a year later, Kai was in the final of the same competition and she saw him. Uh, and she was like, I think you two would work together, which made no sense because I was 17 years old, had long fucking floppy hair like Justin Bieber and was doing, you know, cheeky comedy, whereas Kai was bleached blonde hair, track suits, like a real fucking, like our, we call them Neds or Chavs over here, but um, just basically our, the worst version of working class. That's what Kai was. Um, There's two worlds that made no sense together. Um, so we did like an eight day tour together over the course of two weeks. We got on well amongst that. And Marlena was like, well, so did you enjoy touring together? And we were like, yeah. She was like, okay, the next one is 60 dates long. And we were like, oh, (laughs) so it was, and that was, that was our first tour where, I mean, we were in Scotland, we were playing to, uh, fucking anywhere between 100 and 300 people. Uh, But in England, we were playing to, I think one time we were in Leeds, we played to to 17. I think it was another time we played to like nine. Uh, Oh, definitely. One of the the Scottish ones, we played to like, I think five people were in the fucking crowd. Uh, We were sharing the same car. We couldn't get, we couldn't get a rental. So we had to use Kai's one. We were just driving it until it died. We shared hotel rooms every single night. Some and the bad hotels, travel lodges, and premier inns, and and we'd um, share beds. So there was a time when we were on the sixty-day tour where the only hour that we didn't spend together was when I was on stage. That was the only time, and when he was on stage for the twenty minutes. But there was only an hour, and, uh, there was a one hour and twenty minutes of the day where we were not directly involved, with, and we just became close, man. And people go, "Did you argue all the time? Did you fight?" Not a single argument. Me and Kai, I think we had one. I don't think we've ever had an argument. We just we don't. We'll oh, we'll yell at each other, and you know we'll. I'll I'll say I'll say the worst things, but we don't. I don't we don't take it personally. We're men. <laughs> <laughs> why why would I take a why would I take a personal insult personally? Um I I listed an amazing amount of credits in your intro. And comedy is a business that is conducive to jealousy. And I'm not a jealous person, but I am jealous of you for one thing, and it has nothing to do with comedy. You and Cal Penn have matching tattoos. We don't, they're not matching tattoos. They're not matching. We they're got ma- tattoos okay. at the same time. Okay, so, yeah, I love... Calpin is a special place in my heart. Uh, my guy I was talking about earlier, my son's first godfather. Uh, we were roommates 
you know, a few years before Charlie was born. And one night we were looking, you know, I was at a, a movie place looking to rent a movie for us. And he's on the phone with me as I'm going through. And I come across and I go, what about, we're both obviously potheads. I go, what about Harold and Kumar go to White Castle? And he goes, fuck, yeah, that just sounds insane. So we wa- we ended up watching that movie literally three to four times a day for three months straight. I think I laughed harder at that movie the first time I saw it than I've laughed at any movie I've ever laughed at. It is brilliant. So how did that friendship begin? And how, what, what came, how did that come about? Oh, fuck it. Like, it was my first run at the Soho Playhouse in New York, which must have been about five or six years ago. And I, I'm, I'm doing a five-day run at the, the Soho place. So I'm doing like the Tuesday, the Wednesday, the Thursday, the Friday, and the Saturday. So I don't even think I've done Conan at this point. Maybe I have done Conan at this point. I'm not sure. But I wasn't, I wasn't big in America by any stretch of the imagination. I don't, in fact, I don't think I had done Conan at all. I think this was just, it was just out there. So like my first show was... It was about 30, oh no, 18 on the first night, 30 on the second, 45 on the third. So building, which was fucking exciting for me, man. Never been to New York before, never done comedy. Like, this is great. The fact that I'm even selling tickets, fucking all on board with this. Day four, <laughs> I look out in the crowd, there's about 50 people there. And I'm like, I fa- I'm like, that's fucking, that's Cal Penn. That's, you know, it's the guy from House. That's that's the guy that writes fucking Obama's speeches. That's you know, it's fucking it's Cal Penn. He's a national treasure. And, yeah, and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, what in God's green fucking earth is he doing in this uh, in this in this show? And then I go downstairs afterwards to the bar to see if he's there. And I go downstairs, and there's just another brown man there. And I'm like, oh, I'm racist. I'm a racist. <laughs> I I'm a big fucking racist cunt. I walked on stage in New York, I saw a brown man in the audience, and I was like, oh, it's Kumar from Harold and Kumar, (laughs) because I'm a fucking racist. (laughs) And I felt like an asshole, and then I got outside, and I went on Twitter to see what the compliments said, and Cal Penn tweeted me, being like, hey, man, just saw your show, thought it was brilliant. And I was like, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. I'm not a fucking bigot. Thank God. Um. So, and then he just invited me. He was like, we should get drinks one night. I was like, 100%. And I was like, why on earth did you, like, what the, what fucking drove you to come and see my comedy? And he apparently uh, just walked past the theater, saw the poster and thought, fuck it, let's go see that. Every every time I see him, it just reminds me of my friend Terry. He's He brings me more joy than maybe any other actor Ever and uh, Rise of Taj is a very underrated movie, and I think the only reason it suffered was because Van Wilder was such a hit and a, and a, and a great movie that people automatically wrote off that the sequel spinoff uh, wasn't going to be as good. But it is very underrated. Go back and rewatch it. What are the watched. tattoos? Okay, go. What are the tattoos though? If they're not matching, what are they? Oh, so my one is uh, <laughs> my one is. Uh, that one there is from a movie called Drop Dead Fred. Uh, it's, oh yeah, uh, yeah. It's a guy, there was a British actor comedian called uh, Rick Mail who was part of the anarchist fucking comedy scene in the seventies and eighties. He's just his 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 autobiography is one of the greatest autobiographies ever written, uh, bar none. Uh, it was my favorite movie growing up. I wore out the VHS just rewatching it over and over and over again. It was just so fun. It was just fucking slapstick comedy essentially, but he was just the best 
and it was one of the first things I remember laughing at with my dad. Uh, so I was like, that, I'll get that. And uh, then that there is Calvin and Hobbes. Just love Calvin Hobbes. Read Calvin Hobbes growing up all the time with my dad. I've got this one, which is uh, from a book called Anthony and the Aardvark, which is a children's book that my mother wrote uh, when she was pregnant with me. And then I've got uh, Tesla, Nikola Tesla on my right shoulder and uh, the Joker from Alan Moore's The Killing Joke on my back left. And speaking of, you know, the Joker in comic books, uh, recently you got to create a superhero with Marvel. The fuck? How How did that come about and what was... What was the process? What was that like? Well, so Marvel were really nice. So it was actually my second time in the Marvel offices. Like, uh, first one was uh, a year and a half ago I was doing, they had like a, they had two podcast type video cast things they wanted me on. One was me playing through Spider-Man while being interviewed. And the other one was talking about, uh, I think just, you know, your relationship with Marvel and how you got into all. So I'd been in the offices before and I loved it. Like, cause it's fucking Marvel and I'm a big nerd. And they just, they, and then I was back in New York and they were like, do you want to come back in and do another one of our online things? And, I, and I'm like, any fucking excuse to go into the Marvel studios. Like, I'll spend all day in there. Um, and yeah, they were like, do you want to design a comic book hero? And I was like, fucking absolutely shitting lootly. Um, so... Yeah, it was great. And I was dead nervous as well uh, doing the thing because I'd sent through earlier on like all the stuff I wanted the hero to have and they were and they don't show you until they, so it's a live reveal that they film of them showing you. And I was just, I don't know why, but I was really, really worried that I wouldn't like it or that I, I was just like, oh God, like what if I, what if I just look visibly fucking disappointed? This poor artist has put his heart and fucking soul into it, and just because I'm a spoiled brat, uh, I thought I need to, I need not have worried. They showed me it, and I was, and it's the coolest fucking thing in the world. I'm making sure that I get it printed out and uh, framed on my wall. What were the, some of the questions that they asked you to uh, set up the character? Oh, just like uh, you know, what what does he look like? What's his name? What's his superpowers, what does he stand for, all these uh, things. And, and in my head, if I were to design a comic book character of what I would physically want to be myself, it's the Punisher. I would love to be the Punisher. I think the Punisher is, uh, that's who I would be, which is bad people need to die, just kill them dead, fuck them. Uh, no, no trial, none of this shit. You're a piece of shit. But they've already made Punisher. So I wanted to, I don't know, I know there have been Scottish characters in the marvel universe and there is you know the occasional scottish character but for me i was just like there's never been you know there's never just been the scottish character so i'll just create and and i'm very proud of being scottish and you know it's only when you go to america so much that you realize how little a lot of people know about scotland so i was just like let's try and give it some form of representation somewhere what's the character's name saltire Ah, you in one name. See, I was wondering if you were going to go with the, because uh, almost, doesn't almost every Marvel character have to have the same initial for the first and last name? Peter Parker and Bruce Banner and oh, everything yeah. else. Oh, I don't know if he had a, I don't know if he had, I didn't decide on his actual normal name, but he was more like a mythical fucking hero. And Saltire's the name of the, uh, it's the name of the Scottish flag. And what were his powers? 
super strength and a thunderous voice. Like one that could, like, if he yelled, it would, like, knock over trees and shit. He's just a big, strong cunt. That's, and the thunderous voice, that is a fucking perfect superpower for a comedian superhero right there, using the voice. Does he join the Avengers at any point? Oh, I don't. I think they would have allowed it. They would, they would like bring him in on an emergency situation, but like he's far too fucking violent for them. <laughs> like, so he's like, you know, yeah, it's that whole thing where, where, where I'm, where Captain America's like, I'm not going to kill anyone. And at this point, he's just holding seven heads of people, just been like, I'm not going to not. Wait, I have two swords. What did you think I was going to fucking do with them? <laughs> you think I'm just running around hamstringing cunts? No, I'm here to do a murder. Who's his uh, arch nemesis? Uh, I don't think we got to that, but I think uh, whoever Captain England is. <laughs> what is the England-Scotland beef? Because, again, I'm a dumb American. I don't know any of this, but uh, Kai has a great bit about it. But wh- what is this and where does it come from? Oh, this historically, they're bastard. Like, you, like, uh, Scotland, we we can't deny the evil we've done because we were part of the British Empire while the British Empire was doing its thing and, you know, dominating one third of the world's landmass and, you know, doing genocides and slaveries and all the, all the fun things that come with the expansion of an empire. Um, but also, England has never really given the faintest of fucks about Scotland. They tried to... Uh, subjugate us. Uh, they tried to. I mean, the Highland Clearances, which were in about the 1800s. Like when Americans go, my ancestors are Scottish. You go, yeah, and that's because we were kicked out of fucking Scotland by the English. They came up and um, I mean, they're just bastards. Historically, the English are bastards, and they've been bastards to us. And it's it's a tough one because it's it's a historical rivalry in the sense that you know it's. It's generational and and even now I there's still parts of England that I absolutely fucking despise but most of it I do love like most of my friends are English I love all them a lot of my family are English I love all them I gig in England all the time it's a great place to fucking gig I do enjoy it down there like I, I would say I I enjoy 75% of English people oh wait that's not true I can base on the <laughs> last election <laughs> but most English people absolutely fucking adore to shred wouldn't have a bad word said about them but just it's I do not want to be part of the British Empire I don't want Scotland to be part of the British I want Scotland to be its own fucking thing and the reason Scotland is not its own country is because we voted to say no to the champ. we had a vote on independence and we voted no and, the, and I do not believe we voted no ourselves we voted no because uh, the Tory party which is the English party Brought out Gordon Brown, who was the Scottish prime, who was the last, who was a prime minister of uh, the UK years ago, and he was Scottish. So they brought out this Scottish prime minister to scare pensioners into. They were like, basically, if you vote to leave the UK, you'll all lose your pensions. So all the pensioners voted to stay in the UK. The other big thing, and this was a big, big fucking thing, Scotland is part of Britain. And Britain was part of the EU, and Scotland loved being part of the EU, right? We really did, right? If you look at the vote in the last uh, the Brexit referendum, 66% of Scotland voted to stay in the EU uh, because we like the EU. But so they were like, if you vote to leave the UK, Scotland, it's the UK that's it's Britain that's part of 
the EU. So if you leave Britain, you're no longer part of the EU. And that was a big fucking sway for us because we're like, fuck, we like the EU. They're fucking great. We want to be part of Europe. It's very important for us to be part of Europe, very important for our economy and our relationships. Um, And then we, so it was a margin of 2% or or maybe it was 3 or 4% swung the vote. Scotland voted no. Then in the fucking Brexit, Scotland voted by a majority, by a substantial fucking majority to stay in the EU. But even if every single person in Scotland had voted for something, it doesn't matter how Scotland votes in British elections. It's how England votes. And however England votes, the rest of Britain has to fucking deal with. And, and that is a fair system because they outpopulate us. By a lot. The population of London is greater than the population of the whole of Scotland. I'm not saying it's not fair, but it's just like, our vote doesn't matter. Why give us the fucking vote? And and it it just, for those fucking reasons, we were dragged kicking and screaming out of EU. We were fucking lied to. So when it comes to politics, I fucking hope every single English person dies. But when it comes to... (laughs) I hope they all die. I hope they all get wiped out. But when it comes to all the other things, when it comes to society, friendship, love, audience, all the other nuances in the world, I love them. But politically, fuck them. Fuck them to hell. <laughs> that was the most... Uh, that you could have easily been talking about America that entire time right there, by the way, because it sounded very similar to what we went through here. <clears throat> and you came here uh, all last year for a while you were you were going all over the place you completed an 18 month tour can you talk about some of the difficulties of doing a tour of that size and that length uh yeah hold on i'm just paying live on your podcast oh look at this um i mean the eggs had a lot of uh it was an emotionally taxing show to do um you know talking about sexual assault and Rape every night, and I have to do the show the same way every night. I have to perform that last twenty minutes because I'd rehearsed it so much. Not rehearsed it, but I got it to a point where it there was the right way to do it. There was the right way that would upset. It's like it's like handling sensitive material, not figuratively, but literally, like handling a bomb. You have to. If if you make a mistake with that material, if you don't follow how you figure out that formula. Like you yeah. said, with what you're talking about, it could it could do damage. Yeah, it can upset people, and you know that's the last thing I want to do most of the time. Um, and because the it was the tour that followed after the Netflix specials had come out, and Netflix don't tell you how many people watch your specials, so we didn't know how successful it had been. So we had a couple. So normally my tour lasts six months or up to a year and we put on a, you know you put on a couple of american shows uh in 300 seater venues and they sell out instantly now you don't know if that means 300 super fans were just there ready and there, there is no more tickets to sell or whether there's 5,000 people who wants tickets and they these were just the first one so you then add another show in uh, in a 400 seer, and then that sells out, and you just keep adding and adding and adding and adding and adding and adding and adding, and then it becomes a point where you're it's an illogical movement around the world. We went from Japan to Australia to fucking Singapore to Iceland, going around America. Um, it, it was just acting. It was every single day traveling. Um, for you know, you wake up at. 
fucking six, seven or eight in the morning. You drive to a fucking airport somewhere. You get on a fucking plane to somewhere. You fucking land. You get out. You get your suitcase. You check into a hotel. You get one hour in a hotel. You go to the gig. You perform your gig. You come off stage. You meet the fans. They want to go drinking with you. You try your fucking hardest to do anything. You manage to. You stay out minimum until about midnight or one in the morning and then you're up again at five six to fucking fly the next day um yeah man it was it was really 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 fucking difficult and uh i had to go to therapy because of it uh it's only now like at the time i fucking hated it um which is not what you want to do in this job um you know we're very privileged to get to do this and I was. I just felt. I felt like a spoiled little cunt. You know, it's what I'd always wanted. Get to fucking tour the world, and then, uh, and then to not, in, to to not love every second of it. Um, but I mean, in hindsight, now now that I'm out of it, now that it's all done, and, that, and now knowing that it'll never happen again like that, it was a learning experience. Where I very, very much learned what I was capable of and what I was not capable of. Do you think part of it? being that difficult was because of the material you were doing? Do you think if you weren't doing X and there would have been that same tour schedule that it may have been easier? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I... Yeah, if I was doing different material, I could have mixed the material up. Like, one of my big problems with the tour was I didn't feel like a comedian. Like, I... And I, and I still don't. I wasn't a comedian for the... For the last X went on for eighteen months. For the last twelve months of those, I wasn't a fucking comedian. I was a performer. I was going on stage and I was saying I was performing the show. I was performing the show to the best of my ability. There was no creativity to it. There was no uh, it, there was no spur of the moment things. There was nothing with the audience. It was just the fucking show. I was not a comedian, and I and I and I am a comedian. So I just yeah, I lost. I lost. Um, I just felt like I'd lost a big part of myself. Well, I could tell it was wearing on you there towards the end. And honestly, going around with you just in the American part, I mean, I think I met up with you and Kai for maybe a four-month stretch of that. And it, it is. It's it's exhausting having to – as comedians, when you meet people after the show, everybody thinks, like, it's 100% great to be adored. And even on the level I'm at, it gets, it does get tiring because you have to present yourself a certain way. You have to be mindful. You can't just naturally kind of be yourself because especially nowadays, you know, everybody's watching. And especially with you and what the level you've gotten to, you're always under the eye. You've always got to be mindful of who's around. Yeah. And it's, but also like, I do want to be, you know, in those moments, I do want to be the best version of myself for, the fans, you don't know, you don't know what they're going through. You don't know how much your fucking arm means to them. You don't know how much they saved up the money. You don't know how long they've been waiting for this. They got a babysitter. They've got a fucking night out, and they, you know, they might never get the opportunity to get. It's a very exciting time for, and you don't want to, you know, ruin it for them. You don't want to be. Yeah, I wouldn't have the career I have if it wasn't for the fans. So you do want to give back to them as much as you can, and. There's just some fucking times you just go, I can't. Like, but I also, I don't want them to see me fucking miserable because it's, you know, because it, it's such a nuanced, complex thing. Like, it was always, I was always worried that 
I don't want them, especially when I was doing it, I didn't want them to ever know how much I was fucking hating every second. Like, I really, I really didn't. I didn't because, it, you know, the show really, really had a profound effect on some people and I didn't want them to think that I was over it because that would be awful. So, again, it was a lot of just, a lot of the tour was just pretending to be something I wasn't a lot of the time most of the time it was most of the tour I didn't get to be da- I didn't get to be D- Danny I, just, I was just I was Daniel Sloss I, I had to be Daniel Sloss for 18 months and you know it's exhausting being him <laughs> <laughs> well and you did you 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 treat your fans amazingly well there is a lot of times uh, whatever you know I've worked with a, a, a decent amount of you know, guys with big names here and afterwards when they do their meet and greet, a lot of guys, it's very apparent that they're just, you know, it doesn't ever seem sincere or genuine. Uh, one guy in particular, I mean, Pauly Shore was maybe the worst, uh, you know, violator of this where for his meet and greet, literally he would put two chairs, you know, like normal size chairs in front of him and he would get find like a higher set chair like a you know that had a, a higher seat and he would put it about two feet behind those two chairs and then yeah. people would come up and it was sad in itself that they're coming up like oh son-in-law had such a huge impact on my life and he's just like oh yeah that's cool and he'd sign the dvd and then he would sit in the chairs in front of him and he would stand behind him do some little thing with his arms and then they take the photo and he would just dismiss them. And they're kind of like walking away with a signed son-in-law DVD. Like, well, thank you, Polly, you so much. And he's just, he's brushing them off. And then, you know, if it's a trashy looking girl in a short skirt who, who just literally has herpes growing on her lip in the moment, he's whispering in her ear and everything else. So it's, it never felt sincere or genuine. You would always take the time. Anyone that wanted to speak to you, anyone that wanted to talk to you, you're a present. You were in the moment. You would talk to them. You so as much as you may have been hating that set and everything else, you did a hell of a job of, of keeping Daniel Sloss up. Yeah, but that's that. Yeah, that's the fucking that's the job. Like that is it's the. That's that's the fucking deal you make with the devil when uh, when fucking fame kicks in, which is the benefits of fame hugely, hugely, hugely outweigh the negatives. Um, and, and and part of it is that people want to talk to you, people want to interact with you, and yeah, fucking tough shit, do it, suck it up. Like if you if you don't want to do that, get the fuck out of the job because the job isn't just that bit of being on stage. It is. You wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't be who you were if it wasn't for the fans. And that being said, that being said, you know this very well. My fans are fucking morons, and I say that to their face all the time. I'm not always <laughs> nice to my fucking fans, so they're very aware of what I think of them. My <laughs> uh, honestly, my some of my favorite memories uh, from last year were were, uh, were the barcades. I mean that there is nothing like a fucking good bargain we had some shitty ones uh the one chicago was maybe the worst they had a n- nightclub dj in that people are making out on papa shot games it just it was what's your favorite barcade game uh, um uh, oh the four-player pac-man was always great that was great although i kind of i started to feel like i was getting teamed up as the american but oh, uh, oh what, what joust uh, Joust was always good. I was yeah, yeah. Um, 
the uh, there was a great one we did. That one we played in fucking Madison. That big fucking eight player one. That was Joust, wasn't it? No, no, that was something. That was it was ba- it was very similar to Joust, but it was with the snail. I was, I, the, yeah, the, like one we person were, like, is collecting berries. I, I, it was very jousty, but I don't know what it was called. That was great. Yeah, it's between that one and Pac-Man. Um, I'm going to let you go on this. I have a message for you. Hey, Daniel. It's me, Charlie. I really miss you. How are things in Scotland, you little cunt? Does he have red makeup on his cheeks? <laughs> yes, yes. He was, uh, he was cos- he, he did a cosplay. He found a character that he goes, you know, I, I, I was looking at my hair, and all of a sudden I was like, and it's one of the, he's obsessed right now with this anime show, My Hero Academia. And okay. I'm about to, I'm, I'm about to, I'm going to watch the pilot this week. Cause we did, I think I told you, we uh, we're starting a new podcast series uh, called traumatizing oh, my yeah. child. And he wants to know if you'll do an episode of that in November when you're here. Uh, and so I I'll, I'll spoil it. Cause it actually should already be out uh, by the time this episode's up. The first episode, the first movie I went with was uh never ending story, which you remember from a kid, right? Yeah. I fucking loved that movie as a kid. And I was like, the scene where a Treyu's horse dies in the swamp of sadness is going to break him. It's going to, you know, the, the, the Normok or whatever monster thing. And what I realized 10 minutes into us watching it, it does not hold up like I thought it was. It has been a long time since I've seen that movie. And it's kind of slow and... These fucking kids are spoiled with the special effects that they've been able to see. So it looks really bad. So he wasn't buying into any of it. And when Atreyu's horse was dying, he just laughed because of how cheesy it was. And goes, get fucked. And I was like, damn it. Correct. So now the whole point of the show is I'm going to try. Like, I'm trying to traumatize him. At this oh, I go out of your way to do it. Absolutely. But what did you think of the video? Great. Uh, it's, I was just, I wanted, yeah, I was just wanted to make sure that he was definitely had those rosy cheeks, and that wasn't just some sort of symptoms from uh, COVID. Uh, <laughs> Hashtag uh, we're all in this together. Aye. Uh, well, Scotland's good. I mean, it's uh, it's been sunny here, which is weird. Like, it's really nice that COVID has timed in nicely with global warming because it means this, you know, last couple of years, I, you know. <laughs> Well, the rest of the world properly catches fire. Scotland just gets a little bit hotter and I can start getting burned, which is weird in this fucking country. Um, and it's just a bit fucking quiet. Which can be nice. It can be nice. Especially when you have to spend all of your time being Daniel Sloss. <laughs> Thank you for joining me, buddy. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks very much for having me, buddy. 